In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear sisters and brothers in Christ, let's get philosophical this morning. It was my favorite non-religious, non-Bible type of class in school, but I, I, don't, I don't philosophically exercise as much as I should these days, so I'd like to do it together with you this morning. I've got a question for you. It's a, it's a would you rather. Would you rather have peace of mind or peace in your conscience? In other words, would you rather have something rationally make sense to you, peace of mind, or would you prefer to have a calm and restful heart, peace in your conscience? And here's why I ask the question, either or, because philosophically speaking, oftentimes, sometimes, most times, you can't have both. And I'll give you an example. True or false? God is all-powerful. Scripture makes that claim throughout. And in fact, we just confess to believe in a God who is almighty. That's what it means. He has all power. So we would say that's true. Number two, true or false, God is all-loving. Again, the Scriptures testify to this. In fact, Jesus Christ Himself makes such a bold statement that He says, in fact, no one is good except God alone. God is all-loving. So far, so good. Number three, true or false, there is immense and deep suffering in this world. Double true. I mean, we might go so far as to say those first two I believe to be true. And I do wholeheartedly and have deep convictions that they are in fact true. But that last one, Pastor, I know experientially. There is absolutely immense and deep suffering in the world. And not just out there, but right here. Do you see the philosophical dilemma? If God is all-powerful, and God is all-good, all-loving, then how can there be suffering in this world? How can there be suffering in your life? In the very ones who claim to worship and honor and praise a God who is supposedly all-powerful and all-loving. You see, there's no peace of mind there. There's no decisive answer. They can't all be true in my mind. And people, 
Even religious people recognize this. And so, the way that you get to kind of a solution with this philosophical dilemma is you just start erasing one of the three. And different types of people and different types of religions will do just that. So, back in the 80s, a conservative rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner wrote a New York Times best-selling book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Anybody remember that book? Yeah, it was a big deal. Harold and his wife had tragically just lost their 14-year-old son to a rare genetic disease, and he was trying to make sense of this very problem. How could this happen when I have a God who is all-powerful and all-loving? And so the conclusion that Harold came to, this conservative Jewish rabbi, was to say, you know what, the more I evaluate the world and my life in particular, the more I come to the conclusion that God is not, in fact, all-powerful. He can't be. There's just no other logical explanation. He has the best of intentions. He has a deep and profound love for his creation. He wants what's best for you. But from time to time, when push comes to shove, he just doesn't have the mustard to really change anything about your life. That's how he got his peace of mind. The vast majority of New Age atheists reject the second premise, no surprise, that God is all good. It's their whole justification for not believing in God in the first place. Because they know and see and experience all the evil that takes place in this world. And so if God does exist, then he cannot be good. So why waste your time believing in a God like that? And in rejecting God on the basis of his lack of goodness, they have peace of mind. Suffering exists in the world because we're all just animals who from time to time do animalistic things. And so in this world and in this life, you kind of just need to make the best of it. Finally, Buddhists, for example, reject the third notion that there is actually suffering in this world. Did you even know that? It's simply a mind-over-matter thing. Suffering is nothing more than an illusion. It's caused by all of your emotions and all of your affections. And if you would only follow the eightfold path, you will eventually be able to disconnect yourself from this world and ascend beyond all suffering and reach nirvana. And although by erasing one of those premises, 
you can, yeah, have some peace of mind, meaning it's easier to comprehend. What does that do to your heart, to your conscience, to your inner being, to know that God is not all-powerful or God is not all-loving? Or to know that suffering is somehow made up. It'll make it a wreck. Why is there suffering in the world? Well, because the all-powerful God doesn't care enough about you to stop it. And if he doesn't care enough about you to stop pain and suffering from coming into your life, then how can you have any hope or certainty of having a blessed future. Or, the reason there's suffering in the world is because the kind, loving, compassionate, gentle God is really nothing more than an old senile man. Oh, he winks at you from time to time and he stoops down to kiss you on your forehead, but he's past his prime. And he really can't do anything that matters. In other words, good luck. You're on your own. Or, there is no suffering in this life. You just haven't worked hard enough or believed strongly enough to rise above it. Think about what that would do to you mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, if that were true. Not only do you have to contend with suffering in this world, but now you also have to deal with the guilt and stress of knowing that at least part of the reason why you are suffering is because you are not spiritually strong enough to ignore it. This morning... The Apostle Paul gives us a better approach. He finds himself in a similar situation. He is suffering unwanted pain. And unlike you and me sometimes, Paul even knows why he is suffering, at least initially. Paul writes, "...to keep me from becoming conceited." Because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. Paul was blessed to see and hear things that no other human being was privy to. Earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes how a number of years ago he was taken up into heaven. And he was essentially given a tour. He was allowed to see things that, that no human eyes have seen here on earth or to hear things that, that no human ears have heard. And what is the natural inclination of someone who experiences something so amazing? Well, 
as you're reflecting on your experience, maybe you have experienced something like that. Something that was sort of unworldly or something that, that really made you so unique that, that, that you were blessed in such a way or were uh, able to experience something that very, very few people are able to. What does that naturally incline you to do? Well, you, you start looking at yourself and asking yourself, why? I mean, why me? And very quickly, you can find some pretty good answers, right? Why me? Well, why not me? I mean, come on. Look at everything that I have going for me. Look at everything that I've done. Look at all the hard work that I've put in. Look at everything that I've endured up to this point. Of course, me. Or you, you start to look at those around you and you ask the exact same question in just the reverse way. Why not them? Well, I mean, how much time do you have? I know why they haven't been blessed to experience and see and hear and know the things that I have. Because they haven't worked as hard. They haven't as endured as much. And so Paul having seen and experienced, having heard these inexpressible things, Paul says, to keep me from thinking those things, to keep me from being conceited and thinking of myself greater than I should or thinking of others less than I should, Paul says, God gave me a thorn in my flesh to keep me grounded, to prove my faith was genuine, that I was not only hitching my cart to the wagon of Jesus Christ because I knew that I could see and hear and experience wonderfully amazing things. Paul got it. He knew that his thorn in the flesh was not only a blessing to him, but one that he desperately needed. Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited, God gave me a thorn in my flesh. But eventually the thorn serves its purpose, right? I got it, God. I'm nothing special. Eventually, it's time for the thorn to go. And Paul says three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And I don't really interpret that to mean he pleaded once, twice, three times, and called it quits. No, the point of this is just to say, I pleaded with the Lord again and again and again. It's time for this thorn to go. Paul is not only blessed with this wonderful spiritual understanding that he needs his thorn in his life to keep him humble and prove his faith as genuine, but he's also human enough to plead with God multiple times to take it away. Do you know what that is? That's called being a Christian. A Christian is someone who simultaneously seeks relief from the throne of a God who has both the power to deliver him from it and yet who also understands that regardless of God's response, it is always, always driven by His love for you. So what is God's response to Paul? Well, here's maybe the most difficult thing 
we need to learn this morning. It is not an answer to give Paul peace to his mind. Paul cries out, God, I'm ready. The thorn can go away now. And the Lord says, no, Paul, actually you're going to keep it a little longer. And here are the reasons why. Please look at exhibits A through P. And I will make my case very clear to you. No, God gives no answer. Because God is not primarily concerned with the peace of Paul's mind. So instead, God gives Paul a promise to calm Paul's conscience. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is not an answer. But it absolutely is a promise. So you experience some sort of suffering or you suffer a loss in your life and you plead with God to take it away, to take the pain away, and probably more than three times. And you're looking for an answer from God. Pretty easy question, Lord. It's yes or no. Or you ask God the question, the question, why? Why, God? Why did you let this happen? Why didn't you stop it? Stop it. You want an answer that is going to bring peace to your mind because you have tried. You have been racking your brain for weeks and months and years and you cannot possibly comprehend an explanation as to how an all-powerful and all-loving God could allow such a thing. And you're consumed with this question every single day. And if you could only get an answer, then maybe it would go away. Or maybe it wouldn't. Maybe it would get worse. Because what if God did give you an answer and you hated his answer? Or what if God gave you an answer, the answer, but because God is the God whose ways are not your ways and whose thoughts are not your thoughts and whose ways and thoughts are so far above and beyond our ability to comprehend, we hear his answer and we go, okay, that doesn't make any sense. I feel like you're lying to me. So instead of trying to give peace to your mind with an answer that you would not comprehend. Instead, God gives you a promise to quiet your conscience and to calm and comfort your heart. God, how much longer am I going to have to suffer like this? And God does not give you an answer to that question. To quiet your mind. But he gives you a promise. 
to comfort your conscience. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. That as long as your days, so will my grace be. It really is. In your weakness, the strength of God shines through. So that the only possible explanation for how you will be able to make it for however long it is, will have to be. Not because of your strength but because of His. Or you're looking out into the future and you're wondering and you're asking God, what is the, the, the next 20, 30, 40 years of my life going to look like? What is it going to look like for my, my children and my grandchildren? Give me some sort of sign. Give me some sort of answer as to how this is all going to end. And God does not give you an answer. Not a specific one anyway, which is what you're looking for. But he absolutely gives you a promise. Multiple promises, actually. What will your life look like? I don't know. But I do know that the Lord promises to be with you wherever you go. I do know that he will never leave you, that he will never forsake you. So that wherever you go and whatever happens, He will be there with you. Or you want to know why your loved one died so soon and unexpectedly. And we try all sorts of different ways to rationalize this to ourselves and to our friends and family members. We say things like, oh well, God must have needed him more than you do. How does that work for you? I don't think that calms your mind or your heart. It's just a bad answer. Definitely not something that we see in Scripture, but it does leave you feeling probably more hurt and just as empty. God, why did you take this person from me? God doesn't give you an answer. But think of the promises that he made and kept for your loved one who fell asleep in Jesus. I have forgiven all of their sins. I prepared a place in the mansions of heaven just for them. And I wanted them to enjoy it for all of eternity. Everything is ready. Come and enjoy my wedding banquet. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. You see, when you understand this, when you understand that God does not often give you answers to your questions, that his primary goal is not to calm or give peace to your mind, but instead to give you a promise to provide lasting comfort to your soul, then, then you and I can say with the Apostle Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ will rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, 
in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak in and of myself, then I am strong in Christ. You know, I get the impression sometimes that Christians have been taught, or for some reason we have this innate idea that you can never question God. That to ask the question why is somehow sinful or shows spiritual weakness on your part. I pray that's not the case. Because if it is, then your and my salvation is seriously in jeopardy. Because Jesus himself pleaded with his Father to take the cup of his own suffering away from him. And then there in the depths of the cross, Jesus cried out the question, Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you remember what the Father's answer was? Nothing. The sun wasn't even shining. It's as if it just gave up. Stony silence from a heaven that throughout Jesus' ministry was all too eager to say, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased and now his father will have nothing to do with him in the moment when he needs him the most. And yet, you know the answer to Jesus' question. You know what Jesus in that moment did not. Why? Because this is my forgiveness. Because this is my hope and my consolation. Because this is my Savior. Because this is the price that I could never pay. Because this is the sacrifice that I could never make. That's why. And Jesus does it all for you. And if that is what God is accomplishing, what he accomplished through the suffering of his only begotten son, what is God doing and accomplishing through yours? I'm not going to give you an answer to that either. I could make some guesses, and that might calm your mind for a while. Or I could just simply speak God's promises into your heart. Here's how much I love you, he says. I gave up my son to make you my very own. I put my name on you in baptism and wrapped you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That means there is now no condemnation for you left. That you are forgiven and you are set free forever. God has set you apart from this fallen world and called you to be salt and light so that his love and his light might be, shy, might be shown on and might be given to the world in which you now live. And in the midst of it all, as you two are cut off and persecuted and suffer at the hands of those who want nothing to do with you or your Savior, 
the Lord says, nothing can separate you from my love. Nothing. In other words, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. So yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, God is all-loving. Yes, there is suffering in this life. Even for, especially for, the people of God. They're all true. My mind can't comprehend it, but it doesn't have to. Because God doesn't give us answers. He gives us promises. So keep on asking Him your questions. Plead with God to remove your pain. Make your fervent requests. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. In fact, He loves it when you do. But instead of waiting around, hoping, praying that God is going to give you an answer, ceaselessly cling to his promises. My grace is sufficient for you. It really is. He promises. And grace is something God will never refuse to give you. In the name of Jesus, amen.